Hi, welcome back to Hope. Um, today's episode is titled Hope for Building Smart Communities and there's a reason for that. Today I'm here with Katya. She's a graduate of Columbia and Sciences Po. She runs her own civic tech organization and a think tank in Prague called the Participation Factory. Um, she's traveled the world and worked all over the world, studied all over the world and she has a whole lot of knowledge to show for it. She's worked on some pretty big projects with Czech governments, schools, municipalities, youth empowerment projects, etc. And she's going to be talking to us about her experiences with concepts that translate into building smart communities, um, namely participatory budgeting and civic tech. She's had first-hand experience in these domains, and so trust me, her word on this is way better than a piece of theory you'd read on the same. Hi, Katya. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have an opportunity to share my work and my experiences and hopefully some interesting ideas that you and your listeners can explore by themselves or within their communities. I'm really excited to have you here too. So, I've had experience um working under working under her before, so I know how much knowledge she has to give to the world and that's why I was really excited to like have this podcast and have her here because she has such interesting experiences and so much um specific knowledge about niche domains which you generally can't find online that I thought it was important to like have this session and to have like a first hand experience from someone who's actually worked in the field you know so um maybe we can start by talking a little bit about the kind of work you do Um sure let's start from where I work right now because there's a lot of different backgrounds that play into it and I think this is where my strength is is because I've done a lot of different works in a lot of different fields and I tried to combine it in my daily work um but I'm a co-founder of Participation Factory and Civic Board there's a uh, two Czech based organizations where <clears throat> sorry So I'm a co-founder of Participation Factory and Civic Port. It's Czech-based organizations that work on social impact-driven projects with a specific focus on public participation, citizen engagement, and civic tech. So if we break my work into, let's say, three domains, those would be design and evaluation of any type of participation-driven project, whether it be strategic plan for a community, or participatory budgeting on a city or school level and uh, or something more specific and more complex like creating a participation system for a city um so that's the first pillar of our work um then the second is capacity buildings and within our organization we cover anything related to public participation so we don't teach only about what pb is we teach about what kind of skills do you need to have and that can be anything from data analysis and data gathering to stakeholder mapping stakeholder engagement and strategic communication with those stakeholders and when it comes to the third part of our work it's specifically connected to civic tech or technology that is geared towards uh, supporting and fostering better communication and interaction between government and citizens 
And specifically what we do within this area is we monitor existing civic tech solutions and we help governments to choose the best ones that actually fit them. Because oftentimes the problem is that there are so many solutions, they invest a lot of money into really good marketing uh, without necessarily understanding how the government processes and participation processes specifically work. And at the same time, the governments don't really know um, how the tech functions and they just oftentimes buy a shiny tool that they don't really know how to use. So what we are trying to fix in our work is to help them identify their specific needs and to point them towards, let's say, five or six solutions that are the best fit for them. And this is, in a very broad sense, the core of my work. Okay, so as you can hear, there are a lot of interesting things and a lot of very major aspects of um, us, us building ourselves as citizens today, which Katya works on. So um, since you mentioned that a lot of the work you do is uh, with governments and with people, uh, would you maybe want to talk a little bit about the kind of projects you've been working on lately or some of the projects that you've worked on in the past? Sure. Um, it's always interesting to note that, or important to know that we don't work only in Europe, even though we're a Czech-based company, um, which naturally in some cases means that the level of maturity, but also resources is higher. So some of the projects are very robust, very expensive, even in the sense of the resources that are being invested in it. Uh, but at the same time, in my work, I have done projects with very little to no resources in developing contexts. Um, so to give the broad spectrum of what we do, for example, one of the core projects of my team at the moment is the participation coordinators pilot project for the city of Prague during which we are basically working together with the Institute of Planning of Prague with 12 city districts and we help to train participation coordinators who are then in, in return are managing participation processes on the local district level. The idea behind it is that participation has plenty of benefits from budget savings because you better understand what the needs are because your community is smarter in this way to increasing the level of trust between the citizen of governments. And our role within this process is to train those participation coordinators, basically turning them into us, uh, because at the end of the process, they should be able to plan the processes, to implement them, to evaluate them right, with minimal yeah. or no help. And at the same time, we are piloting it to see what kind of impact it's going to have on the overall well-being of those communities so that right. if there is a positive impact, that the city of Prague can roll it out to the rest of the districts. And this is a very complex project. It lasts for two years. We're in the middle of the implementation stage. Um, just today, I was talking about how to evaluate DB, preparing for a meeting with one of the coordinators. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, for example, in my previous work, still in the field of participation, I helped to implement uh, PBs in various developing country environments. Um, one of the cases that my colleagues worked on was specifically in the city of Kitwe in Zambia. Uh, okay. And it was a school PB project that was run with uh, 
hundreds of kids on a budget. They were allocating two hundred dollars. Um, that was the budget that they had, and nevertheless, oh my God, that's the impact. Really low. It's super low budget, but what was interesting is that that did not uh, create any barriers for participation because the value of school PB and this community activity was not per se an allocating of money, but it yeah. was more about empowerment and actually getting your voice heard, not only in a way I like option A better than option B, but actually creating options A and options B right. uh, as a community. And so there was a hundred percent turnout, and basically the school PB uh, in in this particular context was a hit. So as I said, we work in very different environments on different scale with different different budgets. And I think that's partially uh, the fun of it with uh, with our work, finding the best solutions for specific community and its own needs and resources. That honestly sounds like a lot of work and it sounds like you work with a lot of dynamic projects and a lot of dynamic people. So um, how do you mobilize like people to want to be a part of the smart community that wants to work towards public participation, that wants to ensure that they have consensus and they want to drive decision making and governance, you know, how do you mobilize a community to fit that model? I think this work starts from understanding where your community is at the moment and i think a lot of the times the problem with mobilizing the community lies in the assumption that when you give something to people they will 100 percent be excited about it right. um, and this is this is not always the case if you give something to people that they've never seen before they never tried before that they don't know how to use and right. they if, if on top of this, you also put mistrust in the government and processes, they are not going to engage in, with it. They wouldn't see the value of it. So exactly. the work of actually mobilizing a community is to explain to them what the benefits are and okay. to explain it again in the language that is understandable to them. So even before you start any work, you create, let's say, a set of three, four different messages or value propositions for each of the participants of the process. One of them is the government. What's the value of the government of doing participation of engaging citizens? And they are motivated for the, by different things, um, by good data, by saving money on, on making more relevant decisions. Then you have local stakeholders, whether it's a local, um, big employer who right. has a, who is providing most of the employment to the community, or it's a local cultural center, and then you have the average person within the community. Of course, you can segment it even further within the community. You have very specific demographics, but in general, this is where you start first by understanding who the players are, what their needs are and then getting to their level. Another big problem that I see people doing from development agencies or from similar organizations as mine is coming in a community that has no experience with participation and bringing a very complicated, complex project to them. Right. And it's not only about the money. Oftentimes, those development agencies invest a lot of money in actually running those programs. Yeah. It's purely about the level of complexity. Uh, the 
administrators of the process have to be prepared and have the capacity to do it, um, both in terms of time, but also skills and know-how. And learning a lot is a very, and at the same time, managing participation is very hard. Um, I can and imagine. It can actually, and it can actually discourage them. Oftentimes what also happens, it's a city clerk that has a lot of other things to do who gets this pro like program that they need to manage. It's not their priority. It's something that is very frustrating. So it gets neglected. Um, and it creates frustration on the side of the city hall. And in the future, whenever they, they hear participation, they're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we really don't want that. We had, we had this experience, didn't go well. No, thank you very much. We don't need your money. Uh, and then it's, it's the same with citizens. Um, if you ask a person who never voted or barely votes or doesn't have this civil, civic and political literacy to participate in something as complex as, for example, participatory budgeting, they will be lost. Um, they right. wouldn't know where to start from. And most likely they will be like, you know what, I actually don't have time for this. So whenever you want to engage the community, you really start from low and build gradually because otherwise you overwhelm everyone, you create a lot of frustration and you burn the bridge for future participation because That's to true. it's actually easier to start participation in you than to try to do it again after a really bad experience so that's true that's true it's difficult to convince people to do something once they've already had a bad experience with it much easier to say you know what you haven't tried this before let's give it a shot so i understand what that what you're saying yeah exactly so um, we talked a little bit about participatory budgeting, and I think not a lot of people are familiar with the concept. So um, would you maybe want to explain a little bit about what participatory budgeting is and what it entails? Sure. Um, just for those who don't know what PB is, don't worry, you're going to catch up with it. It's, it's coming <laughs> your way, I promise, <laughs> because it's, 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 it's a very trendy type of uh, process um, that is scaling up in a lot of contexts. Even during COVID, it didn't really go down and kind of like froze rather than got cancelled completely. Uh, but basically, in a nutshell, it's a uh, budgeting activity that gives the power into the hands of people. Um, and the way it's uh, structured is the community budget gets a small percentage uh, carved out for people yeah. to work on. And then people design themselves or in groups, uh, sometimes with the help of experts, if, if needed be, uh, they design proposals for how they want the money to be allocated. Right. After this deliberation and proposal making process, the proposals move to technical assessment. And this is the space for the administration, let's say a city hall, if it's a city PB, uh, for the city to evaluate the proposal purely on its technical aspects, whether it's feasible, whether it fits the requirements and the budget, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and afterwards, the projects that went through this uh, review process get to the final ballot, and people vote on which ones they actually want to see implemented. Right. And yeah. So, as you see, both the decision-making power and the uh, creation of the solutions uh, through projects rest on the citizens. 
It started in Porto Alegre in Brazil, and it kind of grew from this fighting of social inequality and trying to balance out the lack of resources that are being allocated to specific uh, underprivileged communities. Right. And now it's growing. Uh, it's very popular in Latin America, North America, um, in Europe. It's picking up a little bit in uh, in Africa to a lesser extent at the moment, in Australia mm -hmm. to a lesser extent. Uh, surprisingly, which is something, again, worth noting, and I actually didn't think about it before I encountered it, uh, even countries that we consider non-democratic run participatory budgeting processes. That's yeah. I am from I'm from Russia, and I'm yeah. very surprised <laughs> that more than half of the regions in Russia actually run PB, which is a massive number. Right. Um, same, there are PB initiatives in China, which is, again, uh, you wouldn't really expect uh, the country to be encouraging a lot of citizen activities and citizen decision-making processes um, but that's that's um that became a let's say a symbol of participatory democracy at the moment at least when you go to an event uh around the topic or when you talk to people about participation that would in most cases be one of the things that people assume oh you you work on participatory budgeting and you're really right <laughs> among, among other things among other things yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so um, you mentioned earlier that, um, for example, like in the Zambia PV project, the main focus wasn't actually allocating funds to uh, a certain project, but more just driving participation, right? So mm -hmm. um, like, what types of PB are there? Like, how do you fragment PB into different types and decide what the objective mm -hmm. of a particular PB should be? That is a fantastic question. I think there are different ways to segment it. Uh, one of them would be purely based on the community in which they're run uh, or maybe on the scale. There okay. are hyper-local PB processes that are connected to either a school or a district. Um, then there are citywide PBs uh, that cover even big cities with multiple districts at the same time. There is an right. interesting hybrid model, for example, in Paris where in parallel they run PBs on each district, but then also citywide. Um, then there are examples of regional PBs and also national PBs. Um, again, the higher, my personal opinion, the higher you go in terms of the scope and the scale, the harder it is to engage people, because yeah. the, one of the core values of PB is that you can shape your immediate environment and that is the most appealing thing for people, especially who are disengaged from political and social life, because yeah. anything abstract is too complicated. It's too out there, not really reachable. But when you're giving the power to affect your immediate environment, that's something that's appealing to people who are usually disengaged or passive for whatever reason. So that's that's one way to segment it purely based on the on the scale of the PB. Right, and then yeah. there are there are PBs that just have different objective and in term and the value that that there is and we can think about let's say two big uh, groups um okay. one of them is concerned with or maybe three 
one is kind of like a school PBA, which is always uh, a bit of a separate species. Yeah. Um, so the school, the, the school PBA is more about educational aspect of it and really right. providing people with a positive experience of democracy, with a skill set required to be an active citizen. So that's um, that's. Uh, project and the process in itself and then when it comes to larger scale PBs I would say it falls very loosely into one of the categories um, they're of course interconnected but one usually overweighs the other and 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 especially in the context of the U.S. for example uh, from my experience in New York the big focus of the PB was specifically on inclusion of marginalized communities or underrepresented people. And that was one of the key metrics for the success of PB, like how many meetings we had, what was the proportion of women there, or people of color, of the people who identify as the LGBTQ plus community members and so that's that's one category of the inclusion and and providing the space for for these people to do political and and social activities that can benefit them and then the second group is more technical and those are the pbs that heavily focus on data and getting okay. actionable and reusable data and it basically uses PB as a vehicle on making the community more effective and the governance more effective by including people, but also by getting data from them that can be reused beyond the PB process. Right, yeah. So this is this is how we I would usually segment the PBs based on those core values. It doesn't say that if you focus on inclusion, you don't focus on data, or that if you focus on data, you don't focus on inclusion. And, right. <laughs> um, it, it's more about what is really the driving force and the objective um, behind the PB. Right. And otherwise, um, I think that the last thing maybe worth mentioning is PB, we can talk about complete and incomplete PB, so to say. Um, there is a lot okay. of discussion whether we can count SPB an experience that doesn't give people decision-making power, for example. There are mm -hmm. PB processes or processes that are called PB that give people purely uh, advisory or consultative role. Um, right. and people are invited to just provide feedback on the budget which for me is not a PB, but there's a lot of arguments whether yeah. it can be called a PB or not. I mean, or the entire point is for yeah. people to be dis for people to decide on their own what they want, you know? So that's literally the entire point of a PB. If you have something decided beforehand and say, you know what, come take a look at it, say yes. It's, I mean, I agree. It doesn't really classify as a PB in that case. Exactly, and and it it there are two different models that I've seen that are trying to present itself as PB. The first one is I think it was in Bonn in Germany, where okay. they opened the whole budget uh, for public feedback, but there was no decision making power whatsoever. People were. <laughs> invited to say whether they like the percentage, how the percentage split is for, for basically like, we want more spendings on education, less spendings on, I don't know, uh, 
our sports or activities or whatever um but it wasn't the decision making power just like just just tell us are we are we doing fine or not really and then the second type of processes and models that i've seen that are trying to present as spb but i again don't think of them as such is for example a school pb in paris high schools i'm not sure if they changed the model since a couple of years ago but before that okay. participants were not invited to create projects but they were invited to vote on i think three or four projects that were there okay. those were good projects um i one of them was uh, about recycling bins i think the other one was solar panels there was something also about i think water saving water fountains or something along those lines so all of the projects were great but the participants didn't come up with it so <laughs> it's like it's like yeah the like I'm trying to imagine myself being a voter. I'll be like, yeah, those are great. I'll vote for this, but I actually don't need either of them. Right. I actually want new books in the library or something like this. Right. And right. The, the logic behind it was that the, I think the City Hall of Paris partnered with some organizations that donated those solutions as a part of okay. the CSR project. So it was cost efficient for the City Hall. Um, which is great. I mean, it, it's it's very smart to engage private sector in co-sponsoring those uh, uh, type of projects. But again, not really hitting the core of the PBS. It just as sounds like a you know? <laughs> corporate social responsibility stunt. You know, like the ads that you see on TV with like um, a company coming up and say, "Look what we did for this community. Look, we gave them food. We gave them water. We built a township for them." And in the background, they're just like building factories and polluting the area and even more and they're just hiding it behind the front of them, giving them food and water. Like, I feel like it sounds a little bit like that. Like, it's just like, sounds like a stunt Exactly. <laughs> it is. It, it's pure, it's purely CSR, CSR projects for them. And I was, when I was reading about this, my first reaction was like, you could have literally given the money. <laughs> but the, like you could have literally spent the same amount of money by giving the money and exactly. not giving the equipment exactly exactly um, <laughs> so, doesn't, doesn't, but, doesn't look that great on their csr on their csr folder now does it if they just give them the money though so <laughs> I, I i guess so i guess so but it was it, it was quite frustrating because it was um i actually need to check on it if it changed but I remember it was it, it was during the conference and there was a presentation and somebody asked me like oh how did you feel about it it's so cool and I was like oh no I really hate when people put me on the spotlight with this question so I really disagree with something I know it's like what do you say like no I hate it but you can't say that because they're so excited about it like yeah I mean if this is the first TV you're saying, then great that you're excited for it. But like I've seen better, so like I don't, I don't really know if this is like the best thing. Yeah, but um, on at the same at the same time, coming back to what we talked about before, if the level of maturity of participants is not there, that yeah. could be a good model. Again, I I'm just aware that there is so much happening in in Paris specifically when it comes to participation, and that young people are so exposed to those type of activities that right. they would be two hundred percent capable of coming up with projects. And yeah, and frankly, sure. the, the 
the usual age of school PB that we worked with is 10 years or older. So even 10 okay. year old kids can come up with projects. And I think that's a very interesting argument that we used to hear again, now and now I'm like, oh, okay, we should have thought about this. But oftentimes when you go to schools and school management, they're like, oh, but kids are silly. They wouldn't know what to suggest. They'll they'll just ask for chocolate and ice cream and, and <laughs> want to spend money on movie tickets. And at the end of the day, you have kids who are asking for botanical gardens in their school or right. for recycling bins so they can recycle. And this, the school management is hit with the realization that they their own students are actually very smart. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, like, and they, I think. 10 year olds have more creativity than like 17 year olds do because when you're 10 your mind is so free you know you're like the world is my oyster I can do whatever I want to do whereas like when you're 17 you're sort of just like a lot more toned down so like I remember I read about this um, comparison some time ago of like uh, two PVs that happened at the school level in India like I think uh, in some of the southern states and um, it was like they targeted two demographics so like it was the younger kids like 10 to 14 or so and then 14 to 17 so in the 10 to 14 they were like you know we want to like completely power our school with solar power and we want to put solar panels over our school and they figured out certain companies that could provide them with cost efficient solar panels at like a really low cost you know but on the other hand the 14 to 17 year olds are just like yeah let's like build like a space where we can have stalls and put books and stuff you know like you see the stark difference you know and it's like within the same school so i feel like when you think about things like pv then small kids are like underestimated to a very large extent which is not great because they're the ones who usually have like the most creative and out of the box ideas which is exactly what pv needs Mm -hmm. it, that's true and and again even if the ideas are outlandish the facilitators are there to capture the essence of idea and to help them distill it into something that is feasible again you're not exactly. there as a facilitator or evaluator to say it's a bad idea it is your work to say let's make it doable like the yeah. idea is great it's just it's just the scope is wrong exactly um, yeah. so there's there's always room like maybe we can't power the whole school with the solar panels but we can at least make sure that we power it for i don't know two days in a week exactly with exactly. just solar panels uh, so yeah but another the school kids are not only um not only they are creative they're also the best advocates of the process again if if any if any of you have younger siblings you would know if they like something they're gonna tell you That's and they're gonna so keep true. telling you <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna keep telling you until you're gonna love the same thing <laughs> and that was another learning that we had in one of the czech cities we actually figured out that there was kind of like a spike in participation in the regular PB, if it coincided okay. with the school PB, what oh it turned God. out is that young, um, like young students will come home super excited about how awesome their school PB experience was. They start talking to their parents and their grandparents, who would not have known about PB otherwise because we were exactly, not really yeah. teaching them effectively. And they're like, oh, and they started looking out, and they actually found the the city level pb and so now the good the good go-to strategy for us is whenever possible do school pb around the time we need to engage <laughs> older people 
<laughs> yeah, you thought that just end up having free advertisements for a process that's going to help the people themselves. You know, like I feel like a lot of the times, like if kids come and say, you know, what this is so interesting, you have to do this, and they just end up pressuring their parents yeah. to do it. Like, you have to try it. You have to try it. You have to try it. And <laughs> the parents are just like, okay, I guess let's just yeah. do it then. So that actually makes a lot of sense. Exactly, and and they are reaching their parents, their grandparents. So if the if this young student has a full family with all the parents and all the grandparents, he's reaching six people right away. Exactly, it's, it's, it's amazing. Exactly, and then also imagine if if he's going through this experience or she's going through this experience from the age of ten until the age of eighteen. So once she graduates from from high school. She already has the baggage of knowledge and positive experience with democracy, the drive to actually do things, and the skills to do it. How do you exactly. do a project? How do you talk about it? How do you manage those type of processes? So it's 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 a really beautiful tool. Yeah, and I feel like I th- I think I said this to you before as well, but it's sort of very underwhelming to me when I realize that people around me don't know about PG because that's not something we've been exposed to, you know, and it's like. it's such an important tool for democracy you know like just to be able to drive a democracy in the future and to have like certain citizens who are just like you know what we're going to do this you should be exposed to something like that at a younger age you know and that's not something that's done in areas around me you know at least not in my immediate environment so if i were to like i i think i've said this to you before if i were to go up to one of my friends and say hey like um uh what is participatory budgeting that you know like they have like a vague idea just based off of like the connotation of the term but like an actual idea of what it does for a community is not something that they have you know so i think it's really important that we that it's introduced in as many areas as possible so that democracies themselves can make themselves better rather than expecting uh the government to do so and just blaming it on the government like i feel like that's like a very Normal thing I see these days, like everything is just blamed on the government. You know, like old people don't like don't like something that's going on the democracy. It's the government's fault, which I'm not denying that it is. Like to a very large extent, it is. But like you have to think about, you know, who are those leaders? Those leaders are citizens themselves, right? If they had been introduced to um participatory uh, participatory processes from a young age, then that might not have happened in the future. You know, so I feel like it yeah. just holds citizens themselves. accountable and skilled enough to do what they want you know and that, that's really important yeah i think i think the social change comes from both directions as you said there are problems with the government and sometimes the government just does not do well when it comes to exactly. services or engaging people and just like let's, let's let's agree with that and but also it comes from people as well sometimes you need to push from the outside if the government does not doing its job and if the government is not providing what it should sometimes it's a responsibility of of citizens and other stakeholders outside of the government to like really push for it and if we talk about pb specifically again it doesn't have to be government sanctioned or mandated yeah. it can be managed and organized by an ngo by a school itself without necessarily having to have this like you know top down approach government coming exactly. giving all the resources um so yeah but you really you really need to hit this 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 like perfect spot 
between the government wanting to do things and being exactly. ready to do it and, and and people being kind of engaged and again this is um i guess one of the hardest and trickiest things when it comes to participation in figuring out what the community is ready for right. from both sides yeah because if again if we're coming to this problem of like really complicated projects oftentimes when we come to let's say a city that has tried to do something with participation and failed miserably the first thing we hear is that people are awful people are stupid and <laughs> we we gave them these tools and we gave them this uh opportunity and they just like don't want it um, exactly exactly and it it it's really hard for them to understand that it's not a problem with people it's a problem with the process if people exactly, don't want to engage yeah. with the process it's not because people are stupid because people are apathetic uh, which they are sometimes but it's about how the process is structured if the process yeah, understands yeah Go ahead, go ahead. I'll, I'll just explain. Yeah. Um, if the process is structured well in the sense of understanding who the target audience is, what they want, and what they are capable of, then the process works. Don't blame the people for not participating. Blame yourself on the process that you designed and try to make it better so they actually want to participate. I think also, like, besides some just the process of involving people, to a very large extent, it depends on the country or like the area that people were brought up in you know because every human being has an innate desire to sort of make things for make things better for themselves right it's in their own best interest to sort of optimize their life you know and i feel like when you have like circumstances like for example in the us where people are so so done with the government they're like we don't even want to vote like we have no no faith in this country anymore we're not going to vote and the government is giving them incentives like if you come we will give you free stuff please come vote like like what happened in new york you know like they literally had to give people incentives and be like um if if you come and vote we'll give you this and even vaccination like in new york i don't remember what they said but there was like a specific incentive that they gave that they were like if you come we'll give you coupons or like free burgers or something like that if you just come and get the vaccine you know so i feel like a lot of the times not only the process itself but the circumstances and the government that the people have been brought up with plays a very large role in whether they're going to be willing to participate or not, you know. And mm -hmm. it is slightly difficult to be able to change that mindset once they formed it. You know, like, for example, even after giving those incentives in the US, people were still not willing to come out and vote, you know. Like, it's it also, like, I feel like the historical aspect of it also sort, sort of plays into things. It's very important to take that into account and sort of, modify your approach towards people to sort of say hey you know we know this happened to you in the past we know you don't believe in the government we know you don't believe in participation because it hasn't worked in the past but um if you sort of figure out how well this is going to work for you then you should do it you know so i feel like it's important to like give mm -hmm. that approach as well to people to sort of just take into account the historical aspect of things for sure like there is no one size fit all solution that and there shouldn't be an expectation that people will trust the government right away if if you're just offering the process and i think one you you actually mentioned it and touched on it i think one of the most important things especially when you already are 
damage the trust is to admit that you've done it, is exactly. to admit that something didn't work before. And it comes to not only participation process, but any political process. If you want people like rebuilding any relationship, personal, professional, politically, you have to start from admitting that there was something that was done wrong and exactly. explain how you're going to move forward ahead with it. And the beauty of participation is that it's actually a natural space for inviting people to participate by saying, look, we've tried it before, it didn't work, we messed it up. So how about you become a part of the planning process so we can create something new together and you actually get the seat at the table to tell us exactly what didn't work and to help us co-create and co-design something that would fit specifically your needs. This is how you get the people, not by trying to like, okay, you know what, let's forget what happened before and never talk about this again. Yeah, like if you don't acknowledge what happened, there's no way people are going to believe you. It's be like, you're ignoring what I said, you're ignoring everything I went through, what's to say you're not going to do it again if this fails, you know? So I think it's very important to just be like, yes, we acknowledge this happened, but we're going to try our best to not make, to make sure that doesn't happen again, you know? So I yeah. think we talked a little bit about problems right now. Do you can you think of any other problems that you faced while doing participatory budgeting? Um, specifically with PB. Well, I think as I, I kind of like mentioned it before. There's an assumption that there is one ideal model that works for everyone, right. and everybody basically wants to copy it, which often leads to somebody trying to wear shoes 10 sizes bigger than they should for right? <laughs> um, <laughs> like it, it, like when i was when i lived and worked in in france i often met smaller town like uh, mayors or uh, representatives of smaller towns that wanted to run a pb process like paris does Sorry. without for some reason understanding that they don't have the resources that paris does and the structure of the city is very different uh, Paris is a much bigger city, it's much more diverse, its uh, process is geared towards trying to include this diversity into its process, and when you're a much smaller much smaller town, which is fairly yeah. homogeneous, it probably doesn't have a lot of immigrants even, like you don't need this process. If anything, it will complicate things, it will slow it down, it will make it much more expensive. So I feel like that's that's one of the big problems. and kind of similar to this sometimes we encounter cities that want to do pb even though they don't have any experience with participation before and as i right. said pb is a very complex it's a very complex process you need a lot of capacities you need a lot of resources you need at least some basic experience um, right. with uh, with participation and i think another interesting problem that i see less and less at least in the czech republic at least in the environment yeah. in which uh, we operate is it used to be at least the case that technical solution of digital participation was perceived to be the solution to all of it okay um, like the the government would buy a civic tech tool and basically do nothing and then be upset that nobody participated and 
<laughs> you would be like, okay, so did you try doing anything else other than setting up the tour? And they were like, no, but like it's out there. People should be engaging with it. You know, like, <laughs> uh, like where do we start from? And I think I think it's a problem with civic tech and digital participation in general. People for some reason think that having the tool or uh, having a website or social media platform for people to engage is enough. Like you always need a process, you always need the structure, you always need the rules okay. um, that you need to follow. And technology is just a tool. And frankly speaking, sometimes you don't you don't even need this tool. And yeah. again, this is this is what <laughs> so sometimes it's it's not relevant. It de really depends on the community and um I, I've seen it very often that the participation will start from the from purchasing the civic tech tool without thinking how you're going to use it. And um, frankly, that's um, very frustrating on every side, I guess. <laughs> okay, so um, you mentioned that um, Prague does a lot of PD, right? And so do like cities and like cities around Paris in Paris. So what what do you think was like the best? PB that you held or that you saw and uh, why do you think it worked like why was that why was that one or those particular ones um so different and much better than the other ones that you'd seen I think the best PB that we as a, like me and uh, us as a team and participation factory kind of like hold as the golden standard is the PB in the city of Cascais in Portugal. Okay. It's, a, it's a city close to Lisbon, I think like 30-ish minutes by train from right. it. Um, it's uh, on a richer side when it comes to socio-demographics and income. And it has been doing really fantastic work uh, with PB and the level of engagement of people uh, I don't remember the exact number. I just remember that the percentage of people participating in PB was higher than percentage of people who voted in local elections. Okay. So um, it was really generating. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a very it's a very interesting statistics because usually PB is like really a fraction of yeah. the population. And there, it was a really community activity that was that it still is a community activity that's uh, generating a lot of excitement and generating a lot of engagement. And I think what really uh, differentiated Kashkaish is that they were really keen on reinventing PB every year, and there was a lot of focus on really making sure that PB progresses and changes and evolves year from year so they didn't stagnate okay. on one model they kept on iterating it and the other thing which is connected to resources that Kashkash has they really have a big team managing it okay. they they generally within the city hall the city of Kashkash has participation department which yeah. a couple of years ago comprised of more than 15 people which is uh, quite a big team and it was really a tailor-made process with people assisting on it on a daily basis so there was really a dedicated 
process that kept on evolving based on the community feedback, based on the community needs. And there were actually people and experts who were always there to make sure that the process succeeds. And the other thing which I think made me successful in Kashkash is that it was from the very beginning perceived as a part of something bigger okay. and a part of the participation agenda rather than a standalone thing. So okay. it made so PB was embedded in the operations of the city so that everybody right. knew that it's happening, everybody had the buy-in, but also everybody benefited from it. Right. And yeah. the other thing that happened is because PB became an essential part of the city hall operations, it became a stable process that did not that will not depend on the political will of the of the mayor regardless of whether the mayor changes, whether the mayor is interested in participation as much as the mayor before, PB right. is already a part of the Kashkash's DNA. And okay. that's a big, and that's something that a lot of places struggle with, that PBEs yeah. pop up when the, uh, when the government on the city level is favoring it. And then once the administration changes, the PB kind of like withers because there's no interest in it anymore. And so Kashkaish solved this problem. But I also, what I liked about their approach to PB, they did not treat it as a solution to every problem they had. They okay. really had the very specific objective for PB and they did not try to overload it with other things. They ran okay. other participation exercises, rather participation activities to, to satisfy other needs of the community. So the PB stayed the very clean, crisp, process uh, for a specific purpose it was designed for. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because um, I feel like a lot of the times, as you mentioned, when you have PB, it's sort of at the whims and at the mercy of the government around you, you know, especially at like the city level, whether they're willing to support it or not. So I think a city of its own, just having that ingrained in its DNA is very cool. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is where participation in general, not just PB, where participation is moving and our field is evolving from talking only about PB towards talking about participation in large and how PB is just one of the many different things and many different tools that the cities can be using. Right. And then as, as a result of it, we're now having different conversations about how participation should be managed on the city level. As I mentioned at the beginning, one of the projects we're working on is specifically on creating an infrastructure for participation okay. and really making sure that it's something that's institutionalized and not treated as a, a project that's going to happen once a year. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, you mentioned tools, right? So um, was civic tech used in Portugal or was that something that was not required there? So in, in Portugal then, specifically in Kashkaj, they do use civic tech tools. They have quite robust um, civic tech system that okay. covers not only PB, but they also have a database of volunteers um, that is managed through like participation type of methods. Um, they have kind of mapping of issues or events that is interactive and active for citizens. I also think they have a gamified component to it, uh, okay. sort of kind of like a point system 
that you can have uh, based on how many activities you participated in or how often do you participate and things like this. And so yeah, they basically have a city type of developed uh, civic tech platform that manages communication between the government and citizens within PB and, and beyond that. Okay, so um, since we're on the topic of civic tech, I think we can talk a little bit about how civic tech organizations work because again, I myself wasn't familiar with them until I spoke to you about them, I think two, three months ago. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how civic tech organizations work, what they are, how they drive citizen participation and stuff like that. So civic tech, basically the functions of civic tech can be fulfilled in two different ways. One of them is when the city is trying to create its own platform. Uh, which is becoming a little bit more of an outdated way to deal with civic tech. It's very expensive and frankly not really sustainable. So the, then we're moving towards the tools that are developed by outside government organizations. Right. And it's usually, sometimes it's NGOs and nonprofit sector, but most of the times it's for-profit um, okay. pr proprietary uh, startups that are growing developing um trying to make it work since they're startups they have a lot of pressure on them and uh, we are monitoring uh, over 200 tools in czech republic and europe alone without really touching on other international tools we know of the let's say top solutions from other countries that are outside okay. of Europe, but we don't really track in detail. And usually from what we see in each country, there are a couple, from couple to a dozen of gold star solutions that are really kind of like dominating the participation field. And the, as I said before, their main goal is to facilitate engagement and communication between cities and governments that lie specifically okay. within the field of participation because there, there is of course overlap with golf tech uh, which is basically technology yeah. that facilitates usual service services that the government has okay. to provide civic tech is kind of like on top of this uh, when you talk about participation specifically and with the with civic tech um they there are two there are two ways to segment them again uh, okay. within this field is one open source tools and proprietary tools right. so you have tools that are anyone can download for free and then tweak it and use it uh, with the condition that the code stays open the benefit of it is that the code is open for anyone so even right. a citizen can have a look and see how it's structured and then um uh, it's becoming more and more popular and, uh, for example, in some countries it becomes sort of a requirement for solutions to be implemented. Uh, for example, France and Scotland have very strong lean towards open source solutions, so proprietary okay. tools that do not have open code uh, would actually struggle um, in those environments. Right. And then the second way to divide civic tech would probably be based on their functionalities. Right. Yeah. In the sense that some tools really focus on one specific type of thing. So for 
I don't know, for example, the company I used to work for, it's called D21, it used to fall into this category. It was specifically voting tool. It okay, was tool okay. just for voting, really sophisticated with a lot of focus uh, on the voting methods, on the security of the vote, but it was really narrow. And then you have other tools that are trying to do it all. So there are more um, multifunctional. They would have functionality for gathering citizens' proposals, for voting, for mapping, for uh, pushing notifications and messages to participants. And again, they yeah. have um, different benefits to it um, be because if the tools focus on one specific thing, they usually are more sophisticated when it comes to it. Um, since they really, really tailor their like structure their work around developing the best state-of-the-art solution to one specific problem. Right, right. At the same time, it's very hard to fit a big complicated participation process into one civic tech tool. So usually you end up uh, purchasing a few because you need voting, you need to also gather the ideas, you maybe need to map them. So you end up yeah. with three solutions or you opt for a tool that does all of it, but has a little bit less of sophistication or that is a little bit less complex or maybe a little bit more messy on the project management side. So it, it really is up to the, the needs of a community and where they are. Right, okay, that makes sense. So yeah. um, besides from D21, uh, you're a part of a civic tech organization right, right now as well, am I correct? So I'm, I'm a co-founder of Civic Port, and this is an organization that doesn't develop its own civic tech product. What okay. we do, we provide advising on what civic tech exists. So we basically track civic tech, we see and we track its functionalities, and right. then our service for the cities is to help them identify and understand their needs, because oftentimes they don't know what they need from civic tech, yeah. they just want to have something, they want to be digital. Um, <laughs> Why do you want to be digital? Let's talk about this. Let's, let's sit down and have a tea and discuss. Um, so we help them identify the needs. Uh, we help them to understand the, what processes they're going to use it in. Um, and okay. then based on all of this, we create a list of functionalities and requirements to civic tech that they should be looking for. And only then we provide them with a short list of let's say five, seven organizations of civic tech solutions that we think would fit their process. And right. the rest is on them, what kind of tools they want. But that's a really a, kind of like a, a curse of civic tech as a field. A lot of civic tech providers are tech guys who really want to do great things, but yeah. they don't know much about how the governmental processes work, um, what kind of the cycle they have, what kind of needs they have. So the tools sometimes are disconnected from the needs of the city. On the other hand, you have the city that doesn't really understand the tech. Um, they don't right. know what functionalities to look for. And we're basically trying to help them to bridge the gap and to yeah. communicate more effectively with each other. Because otherwise, the civic tech companies are super frustrated with the cities because they yeah. provide them with, a, with an amazing solution for voting, 
and then the government is like the government officials exploded them for like people don't engage with it and so you, you can see how that can go wrong yeah <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. on yeah and on the other hand the the cities are very gullible uh in in the sense that they don't understand tech and they just buy something yeah. that sounds nice that's true so we're we're so we're really seen that a lot uh as, as i i'm not sure i know like i mentioned that i worked at the civic tech company before yeah um, at d21 specifically and that was our experience we saw that oftentimes that this the the process needs to be tweaked sometimes in a way that fits the solution, which shouldn't be the case. The civic tech is a tool and you shouldn't be structuring your process around the tool. Around the tool, the tool yeah. Right. Yeah, the tool should fit the process. Yeah, so I think that like reminds me of like D21 created the Janicek method, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So they, I feel like, again, like that tool can only work in places like Prague, you know, like the processes that go on there, like it could only work in, at least right now, in uh, more liberal mm -hmm. places where politicians are willing to accept a complete revamp of like the voting method, you know, like mm -hmm. I can imagine, I, I can't ever imagine like people being able to convince um, an Indian official that you know what this is really complicated method of voting where you have multiple choices and you get to say no to things you get to say yes to things and you don't necessarily have to choose one thing will be you know accepted with open arms so I feel like it's very important that your tool sort of fits like the demographic that you're in as well and sort of is able to even convince mm -hmm. the officials that you know what this is something that will work because it's very difficult to bring change in political arenas, especially when they're run by people who are maybe a little older than, uh, you know, the citizens are, you know, like, or like a little more uh, wealthy or more in power. It's difficult for them to understand why we should increase participation to the level that organizations would endorse, you know. Yeah, that that was one of the things that was struggled with uh, the Anarchics method. Yeah. Because political, especially especially if it comes to like really high level type of political decision making beyond the PB. Usually with PB, we didn't have that much trouble convincing people to change the voting method because it's not affecting their position politically. It doesn't affect the policy that much. Um, for for those who don't know, Yanchik's method provides each voter with multiple positive votes for something, and then based on the number of options, it also provides you with negative votes that you can use to basically downvote something or to minus votes from uh, the option that you're really strongly against. And it's it's really great in discover in helping to uncover some hidden patterns. Um, exactly. it, it was really fascinating for me to see, and frankly, this is how I actually came to work at T21 as a, a volunteer and an intern. I was re I was researching for myself different voting methods and just yeah. learning um, more about them. Then I learned about the Anchex method, and it just um, naturally was drawn to learn more uh, because it really especially if you layer it with analysis of age, of gender, of 
I don't know, geolocation, location, location, you can, you can, I don't know, women age 20 to 35 are done voting this particular option. So that is a story behind it. And that's super exactly. interesting. Um, but there are two things, as you said, political leaders have to be ready for it and the political system has to be ready for it. Um, one of the most progressive environments that I worked in is Scotland and they were super stubborn about the voting method. Yeah. Um, they, they use um, also plural, they use preferential voting systems. So they basically yeah. rank the options Yeah. and yeah. they're very unflexible about it. Uh, regardless of how much we talked about the benefits, pros and cons, no, this is our political, this is our voting <laughs> system, we love it, it yeah. works, that's it, end of the conversation. So uh, it doesn't matter how progressive it is, uh, the environment, right. it's just political systems are rigid. If it works, it works, nobody would want to change it. And then also it can be confusing to people. Um, it can, it can yeah, be like the fourth the first time I was introduced to it was when I was doing like a simulation of a PB. And um, I remember it was, it took me like half an hour to get my mind around how I'm supposed to do this, you know, because I remember when like, so why I, one of the, um, the, the officials at B21, Jan, um, he was sort of explaining the process to me and he was like, Elisa, um, this is how you do it. You have three votes. Yes. Two votes. No, go in this order. Like, it was a little confusing to me at first, you know, like even in the person who understood what PB was. So I can understand how it would be difficult for even citizens to wrap their head around it. You know, like a lot of times, I feel like it also comes with a drawback that some citizens might be averse to even voting in the first place, just because the process sounds a little more complicated, you know? So I feel like yeah. if you bring that aspect in as well, then it's very important to like, sort of be very mindful of the environment that you're implementing that voting process in, you know, people have to be intrinsically driven to want to make a change because if they're not then a complicated voting process where people already don't want to vote where people already don't believe in the government won't really bring about that much of change you know it'll be a specific group of people voting and you're getting information on them which is biased you know yeah exactly and i i think there's another point which we actually had to work into our school pbs was yeah. um when you work with proposals from citizens, when the vote is on something that citizens contributed on like options or opinions, if those are sensitive topics, if those are groups that are usually excluded or who are usually marginalized or not a part of a political discussion, that right. can be very, very discouraging and very painful for them. Right. Um, so for example, when it came to school PBs for younger ages, we actually excluded the minus votes. Uh, yeah. After talking to child psychologists, they were like, you're gonna ruin those kids whose uh, proposals are gonna get downvoted. So please yeah, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, or imagine if the, if the topics around, um, I don't know, let's imagine a situation where there are proposals around gender equality or racial issues or issues of sexuality and they get minus voted yeah um what kind of message does it send what kind of power does it give to people who hold discriminatory views so exactly. there's a lot of thinking that needs to be happening when you're giving this power to like give a negative vote to something 
So, um, as we can see, a lot of drawbacks to like a lot of the civic tech tools we talked about. <laughs> but um, what were some of the best examples that you saw of like civic tech tools actually making a very major change in the environment they were working with? I think I I have a one tool that I really enjoy looking at where they're progressing. I didn't really have to work with them per se on the project okay. basis. It's a Belgian Belgian tool called Citizen Lab. And one thing that I really like to seeing them doing is that they really try to make their tool fit the process rather than the okay. other way around like they they really focus on they're aware of the fact that the tool is not the solution that the tool is just there to facilitate the process exactly. and their work is really structured towards working together with governments and helping them build processes yeah. and then providing them with tools that fit that which i think is really beautiful and the other thing that is a little bit probably of my like nerdy linguistics background speaking <laughs> they have a very fascinating feature i haven't seen it's um i think it's called an english natural language analysis or something along those lines but basically okay. what it does the functionality um it gathers all the comments from the proposals and it immediately clusters them together based on the theme words Okay. And it shows how prevalent the themes are, um, what kind of reaction. So it's also then lit into red or brighter red, from really bright red to really bright green to show okay. how many people agreed or disagreed with this comment. So yeah. it literally creates a word analysis of all the comments within the platform and provides you with a quick look of what people are talking about and how others are reacting to it which is fantastic because one of yeah. the most daunting tasks for any researcher is to go through qualitative data all of it yeah and 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 to um, measure it and to classify it and to structure it and this tool is the first one that i've seen attempting to do it and in doing so as of now i've seen doing it quite well so that was that was really really brilliant from my side. Otherwise, there are a lot of um, tools that I've seen. For example, in Czech Republic, there is a tool Mobil Neroslas, which I would say probably the best player uh, in the field of civic tech in Czech Republic. Okay. And what I really loved about the tool, or rather their approach during the COVID, they basically. Uh, during the, the first wave of COVID and the outbreak of the pandemic, they basically gave out the free version of their tool to a lot okay. of municipalities yeah. to support, because the, a, part, a big part of their tool and functionalities they're um, building on is constant communication or immediate communication with okay. the citizens through emails and SMS. And so they are very effective in in communication and data gathering in, in real time, which was essential, especially at the beginning of the pandemics. So I was I was really happy to see Civic Tech uh, stepping in and actually supporting the cities in, in during the crisis times because um, that's at the end of the day what Civic Tech should be doing, helping governments support their communities.
that's actually very interesting and that brings me to my next um that brings me to my next thought so over the last two years we've had covid and we've had people not being able to go out and vote the way they usually would in a lot of areas and i'm sure civic tech to a very large extent helped alleviate the disadvantages associated with that you know so what like how have uh, in your opinion how has civic tech evolved like what are the trends you've seen internationally nationally at the local level um in recent times i would say especially during covid civic tech moved from a nice to have to must have or at least you yeah. should have um because it, it really helps to manage communication where previously it has been done in the offline space or in real life right and it happened for a few reasons one obviously you can't have a public meeting you can't have a voting in person so you need to do something yeah. else but also i think the i think the people who do participation or do citizen engagement they are starting to understand that social media is not enough or social media is actually not yeah. a good tool for, for citizen engagement <laughs> It's it's just it's it's not good for a lot of different reasons. It's uh, very it's a distracting tool. It's created for distraction rather than constructive communication, and and it creates like it, a bubble around you. You know, like you if you're sort of engaging with a certain type of political figure with like a certain type of um, political structure, then you're just exposed to that structure. You know, your social media algorithm only shows you that. You can't move beyond. those constraints and sort of look beyond them you know exactly so, so social media really limits you in what you're saying it really tries to distract you and then also it's unstructured the there is no way you can have a neatly structured process yeah. for participation on social media and that's a big difference for civic tech civic tech is actually tailored to follow and a lot of civic tech tools actually even have it as a part of their ux experience right they they literally follow stage by stage so you know what happens next you know where you are within the process and it really right. guides you at, and as a participant you have the comfort of knowing what happens next and what already happened exactly and you're you're in the space where specific rules apply where you encounter other opinions regardless of whether you agree or disagree with those people on exactly. other topics so it really is a space for constructive communication versus unstructured communication happens on social media and so the governments have quickly learned that social media is not enough like even though you can do something on social media um it's just not gonna save you especially if you need to do something really complex so it's it's definitely picking up and uh it's becoming less and less scary even small cities and towns understand that this is something that they should be doing that it's not yeah. as complicated as they think it is and i think i already mentioned i'm not sure czech republic is there yet but at least internationally there is a trend for solutions to go open source even okay. if they were proprietary before um and i think it's going to um, it's going to stay so the example i gave of citizen lab they actually i think 
in beginning or mid uh, mid spring they went open source and it was very interesting because it's a very big civic tech provider they actually yeah. have a grant from investment from google so they're not trying to down to downshift or downscale yeah. their operations um and when we were talking to them during one of the discussions it was mentioned that it's um more of a principle and signal of values for them and for a lot of the open source solutions it's not really business motivated but it's more about again enhancing the trust between them the government and the citizens and making sure right. that they actually act on the values that they, that they communicate to the world so i think this this trend is probably going to stay um yeah and it's going to be it's going to continue to pick up but we'll see like i haven't really noticed it in czech republic but i think it's coming yeah no i think it's very important to have people involved and to sort of just feed it into it or turn it into an open source tool because that's at the end of the day the entire point of civic tech right to involve citizens more so when you transfer from being proprietary to open source it you take giant leaps in ensuring that your objective is met you know mm-hmm. i think it's i i always though want to mention with civic tech there is a misconception that it's um cheap um mm. which it's not necessarily so because you still need a lot of adjustments to set it up etc etc so the costs for for open source is still there and the other thing is one thing is to have data and code out and open and the other thing is to have it accessible so those are those are two very different things it's great that it's open but at the same time for example for me i'm i'm expert on civic tech and participation but i'm not a coder myself so for me yeah it would be gibberish and i would not be able to understand it so it again it's it's open it's better than nothing but in terms of accessibility it's limited to a very specific type of population uh, mostly hacktivists who are both coder coders and also social impact oriented right okay that makes a lot of sense i haven't really seen or heard that much about hacktivists besides from just general country data leaks and stuff company data leaks and stuff like that when certain activists are like you know what i need to figure out what's happening in this company and figure out how they're using their funds and that's pretty much the only time i've ever heard about hacktivists like coming into play i think i'm i'm using the word loosely to mean someone who is coding and who's familiar with coding and comfortable with it but also who does it for social impact Right. and there's a whole there's a whole network around consul um that was a platform created by the city of madrid uh by its open source and there's a whole lot of people who work with it um who produce quite a lot of interesting even events and materials to read about civic tech and open source um and open data and also there is the civic tech solution for democracy os Yeah. Again, open source and people who work with it are the same profile somebody who codes who's familiar with it and driven by social and political impact so if 
anybody you included want to know a little bit more about their world yeah exactly <laughs> it's out there <laughs> that's very interesting and i think it's very important as well because as i said the more participation you can have the better as long as it works towards productive change um so um everything we've talked about today participatory budgeting civic tech and we started off with the model of a smart community so all of these things sort of just fit into making that model achieve you know there's sort of working parts to the actual machinery which is the smart community you know exactly and this is this is the pitfall people usually fall into when talking about smart community they either go for one or the other and they really get tricked about like oh it's not smart community unless you have this type of technology or unless you do this part of participation and i think it's better to think about smart community as the community that really understands its needs based on okay. the data from the citizens and the stakeholders yeah. and then the smart community chooses the right tool and the right methodology to engage and re-engage people to increase participation to increase its own capacity and continue to grow it's like you don't become a smart community when you start doing pb you're a smart community when you understand what the needs are and you start growing towards the direction that you need to grow based on the needs identified by people with civic tech or without it as you said it's, it's a tool <laughs> that you sometimes need and sometimes you don't <laughs> Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I feel like talking about the various aspects under a smart community was very important for us to be able to properly define it at the end. Because when you just throw out that term of like a smart community, it's like a very abstract term, you know, until you give some concrete grounding to it with like the various processes that go behind making that community possible. So I think our discussion today very, very well encompassed how we can work towards that smart community model. So um, thank you so much for coming and like spreading your knowledge and helping people around me also understand the kind of work that's required to sort of make our world more citizen centric. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm always, always happy to share, hopefully not to confuse everybody much. <laughs> As I said, if, if you if you're ever interested with this topic, start from understanding why you're interested and then gear towards it. At some point, you inter intersect all of those fields and hopefully. Exactly. Yeah, I'll make sure to. Exactly. So I'll make sure to like put in some link, some basic links about certain things that we talked about today in like the description as well, so that people can go and like read the basics of what we're talking about like basically what is participatory budgeting basically what are civic tech organizations and i think with that like today's discussion worked out very well so yeah um thank you for listening into hope and uh that's it today for our episode hope for building a smart community thank you